All right, we are rocking and rolling in our uh, series on James now. This is going to be our uh, second week in our uh, Faith That Works series. And uh, up until this point, uh, we've covered uh, verses 1 through 4, and, and uh, several weeks ago actually did 5 through 12 as a, as a separate uh, sermon before we decided to do this series. And, and everything we've looked at in the first half of this chapter, this opening chapter in James, has had to do with trials. And we talked about how trials really are uh, the backdrop of, of this letter. He's writing to a suffering church, uh, a church that is suffering persecution from the outside, uh, but is also dealing with some inner turmoil. There are divisions taking place on the inside. And so as we get to our passage today, James uh, shifts the discussion a bit uh, and transitions from talking about trials to talking about temptation. And uh, this is a pretty natural transition uh, because the two are, are really closely related. Uh, every trial carries with it unique temptations. Temptations often uh, surface in the midst of trials. We talked about this when we looked at trials of poverty and, and trials of plenty and how uh, you know, in trials of poverty, there are unique temptations there, temptations to, to despair, temptations to envy others, temptations to accuse God of wrongdoing as if he's using our circumstances in life to punish us. Uh, trials of, of poverty can cause us to, uh, to search for unethical solutions to, to change our circumstances. And then you have these trials of plenty on the other end where we're well supplied for and, and Yet they still come with temptations. There's temptations towards pride and, and materialism. Temptations to find our security in our status and our wealth and our power. Even temptations to turn our eye on the poor and the needy. And so every trial carries with it temptations. And what James teaches us is that we can easily drift into a, a, an errant way of thinking when it comes to where these trials come from, where these temptations come from, and ultimately where even sin comes from. Because we know from Scripture and what we've looked at before that God not only allows, but He actually ordains and sends trials for the sake of testing our faith and even growing our faith. And so in our, in our, in our minds, it's really easy to take this, this logical next step that seems reasonable to say, well, if God ordained my trial, if God sent my trial and he must have ordained the temptation within my trial. And maybe he's even complicit in the sin that, that results from that temptation. Maybe it's God's fault. And this is what James is really uh, combating here. Because we know from Scripture that God does not tempt us. We talked about the difference between testing us and tempting us. You know, God will test our faith, to prove it and, and to grow it. He, he tested uh, Job. He tested Abraham. He tested the Israelites in the wilderness. But he never tempted them and lured them to sin. God is never the agent of trying to, to pull us and entice us toward evil. And so if temptation doesn't come from God, then where does it come from? And how does it work? And most importantly, how do we get victory over it? This is where James is heading this morning, and he presents his argument by creating this contrast between man and God in the form of a problem and a solution. Because when it comes to temptation, the problem, as we'll see first, is man's sinfulness. 
The problem is man's sinfulness. And the first point that he makes is that man's sinfulness is first evidenced by sinful desires. Man has sinful desires. So let's look at verse 14. It says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And so the first evidence that man is sinful is these sinful desires that are at work within us. Temptation doesn't originate from God at all. It starts in the human heart, James is showing us. And if we have sinful desire, and we are being lured and and enticed according to that desire, then it's not as if something strange is happening to us. It's because as it is with all of humanity, we are fallen. And and, and James describes this sort of process of temptation using fishing language, which is fitting because he was a fisherman. And and so he says, just like fish are are lured away and enticed by bait that is, is on a hook, so our temptations lure us and entice us, he says, and they will ultimately ensnare us if we don't resist them. And we see this same luring and enticing happen in the Garden of Eden, don't we? This is what we see happen in the fall of man. And what we're going to find is that our whole passage this morning really finds its parallel in the garden. Satan first comes and he begins to tempt Eve with this fruit, something that the Bible says was pleasing to the eye. She desired it. It was sensual. It offered something she was looking for, which sin always does. It's only tempting because it's something we desire. The, the, the hook is always going to be baited according to the appetite of the fish. And one thing you'll notice that's different, though, in James' account is he, unlike Genesis, never mentions Satan, which is kind of curious, isn't it? See, in Genesis, we see Satan as this agent of temptation, but James leaves Satan out of it. And a lot of commentators will tell you that that is very intentional. He doesn't mention Satan for a specific reason, because human beings, me, you, everyone in this room, we tend to be very masterful at blame shifting. And here's this church that is already wondering if God's responsible for their temptation. They're already trying to kind of shift the blame onto God. And it'd be really easy for them to say, well, if God's not responsible for our temptations, maybe it's Satan's fault. Or maybe it's bad circumstances or bad influences, but James leaves all of that out and he puts sole responsibility for these evil desires on humanity. He says these things come from within. He doesn't give them any out here. He wants them to understand that the the ultimate blame for when it comes to temptation, the, the origin starts in the human heart. This is the depth of how corrupted we are. Even if the devil were locked away right now and we were to find ourselves in perfect circumstances without any bad influences, we would still have evil desires, would still be tempted, and ultimately would still sin. The human heart is capable on its own without any external influences of producing the desire, the temptation, and the sin. And James wants them to understand this. And so one point of application right off the bat, one thing we should learn and, and, and something we should develop is a, a healthy sense of, of self-distrust, knowing that. James is teaching that our heart is a, a factory of, of sinful desires and temptations, that 
I can actually be lured away and deceived by my own heart. How wicked is that? My own heart will lie to me. So when I say a healthy sense of self-distrust, that just means don't always trust where your heart is leading you. You know, one of the most famous occultists of our modern era was a man by the name of Aleister Crawley. Not Uncle Fester up there. You know, I, I don't mean to stereotype, but he kind of looks like a Satan. I mean, I looked at it and I was like, he kind of looks like he's an occultist. Aleister Crowley was kind of this mixed bag of cultish beliefs. But one thing was for sure, he hated Christianity and, and, and pledged his allegiance to Satan. And he ha- wrote a lot of books and his books were very influential on this guy that's going to show up next. This is Anton LaVey, and you may have seen him before. He is the founder of the Church of Satan. He is the publisher of the Satanic Bible. And Anton was fascinated by the writings of Aleister Crawley. And there was one particular motto of Crawley's that governed everything he wrote. And Anton LaVey adopted this motto to govern the Church of Satan and even the Satanic Bible. And the motto that he pulled in was this. Do as thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Now, you may have even seen this on bumper stickers. Sometimes the the whole of the law part is is left out, but you'll see bumper stickers, do as thou wilt. And I think a lot of people don't understand the origin of that quote. It came from Crawley in his writings. And the philosophy behind this is that human beings shouldn't be restrained by any sort of external code of conduct or, or, or some ethic that's imposed from the outside. They should be free to do what they want, whatever is in their heart to do. Your heart will lead you in the right direction. You can trust your heart. But if there's one thing that we're learning from James this morning is that this motto is garbage. It truly is satanic. Our hearts will not always lead us in the right direction. In fact, they will often point us toward temptation and sin, not toward what is good for us. And so do whatever is in your heart can never be the rule that we live by. I mean, I've, how many of you have heard people say that before? You know, just do what's in your heart. And you know, look, I, I know God can, can influence our heart too, and the Spirit can speak and put things in our heart. I'm not discounting that. What I am saying is that this means our heart can never be the ultimate authority in our life. We can never follow our heart blindly. Just because something's on our heart doesn't mean God put it there. I love the way the prophet Jeremiah puts it. He says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Our hearts are living under the effect of the fall, which means they can and will deceive us. And so we have to live with a healthy sense of self-distrust. So the problem of man's sinfulness is first evidenced by man's sinful desires. But what we learn next in this progression is that if we don't reject those sinful desires and turn away from them, they eventually become sinful actions. Man's sinful desires lead to sinful actions. Let's go back to our text. It says, Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. So here, James abandons his fishing metaphor, and he starts a new metaphor, and it's one of conception and birth. And what he is saying is that just like a baby is conceived and grows within the womb, and then one day makes its way out into the real world, he says temptation is like that. Temptation is like a seed that is sown into the heart, and if it's not rejected, if it's cultivated and nurtured, it grows within. 
and eventually will make its way out through our actions. You know, uh, some people think that it's the temptation itself that is the sin, but it's not. Our evil desires and temptations are just evidence that we're, we're fallen and, and corrupt, but they are not in and of themselves sin. It, wrong desires and, and wrong uh, motives even will, will tempt us, but sin is a result of a process of not turning away from those things. It's, it's actually taking the bait that is lingering before us. You know, Martin Luther once put it this way. He said, you cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. And he's referring to these sinful desires that tempt us as birds. Temptations come sometimes relentlessly. And while we can't stop them from flying overhead, we can keep them from nesting. We don't have to give temptation a home. We're called to resist temptation instead of nurture it and incubate it, or eventually it will give birth to sin. We see this in the garden as well, don't we? Satan is tempting Eve, and she doesn't resist and turn away. She lingers and speaks with him and gazes at the tree and its beauty, seeing that it's good for food. The Bible says that she desired it because she saw it was able to make her wise, and eventually she falls into the temptation and sins. And so some temptation has to be resisted, and it has to be resisted quickly. You know, I have found, even in my own life, that when I sit to contemplate whether I should do something wrong, that even in that period of time that I'm just contemplating it, the enticement is growing. This is how fast this process can go down. And this is why it's imperative that we act quickly to renounce temptations, exposing them for what they are. One of the best examples in the Bible of this is Joseph. Joseph is working in his master's house and his, his master's wife comes and tries to seduce him. And immediately he bolts. Even leaving his robe behind, he runs off naked. Why? Because the sin was just so repulsive to him, he couldn't imagine it? No, because it was enticing. He said, I got to get out of here now. I may not leave at all. And so we need to flee from temptation and sin. Just as Paul told Timothy, flee youthful lust. Just as Joseph fled, so we need to flee. Do not be enticed. Do not take the bait. Don't hang around to see how temptation is going to play out. Get away. And as we're going to see from where James takes us, the reason this is so important, so critical, is what he shows us next. That man's sinful desires lead to sinful actions, but that the end result is death. The end result is death. Verse 14 again. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Death is the penalty for sin. Back to the garden again. Adam and Eve are tempted, they sin. And what happens when they sin? They quite literally have birthed sin into the world for all and have brought about death. And God warned them about this, didn't he? In Genesis 2.17, he said, But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Yet, they ate. And guess what? So did we. We have sinned. And the death that sin causes is not just a physical death, but much more importantly, it is a spiritual death that separates us from the life of God. 
And in the Old Testament, when they would have their ceremonies and offer sacrifices, they had a visual reminder constantly before them that the the penalty for sin is death. This is the result of sin. Sin kills. And that's not an overstatement this morning. And so not only does it have the power to kill our soul ultimately, but even for those who are in Christ, who've received his forgiveness, we have to remember uh, sin's destructive power, that it can still destroy relationships, destroy intimacy that we enjoy with God, that it can kill peace and kill joy. Sin is by nature destructive. This is why Peter in his letter to Christians says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. He says these fleshly passions war against the soul. You know, if you read the book of Proverbs, this idea of temptation and sin and death is captured so vividly as Solomon presents sin as a harlot that entices us and lures us away from God with the ultimate aim of bringing about death. Check out this verse from Proverbs 7, 21 to 23. Speaking of the temptress, Solomon says, with her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one fetters to the discipline of a fool until the arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare so he does not know that it will cost him his life. And so sin entices us. It lures us with the purpose of bringing death, destruction, darkness, and Maybe you're here this morning and I don't even need to be telling you this stuff because you're living it. Maybe you're here and your heart is far from God. Maybe, maybe you're not in relationship with Him and you're experiencing the darkness and death of, of your own sin and, and of other people's sin. You're painfully aware that the sinful life is at odds with a life of peace and joy and fulfillment. Well, if that's you this morning, I want to encourage you to keep listening because good news is coming. There is hope this morning for you. But for now, we are left with a pretty grim picture of humanity, aren't we? I mean, you put it all together and it looks like this. Wrong slide. (laughs) Doesn't look like him. That's the sinful man! (laughs) Is this. Sinful desires lead to sinful actions which produce death. But the solution James gives us this morning is this, God's goodness. God's goodness is the solution this morning. If you've been at this church for a while, you've probably heard us quote Thomas Chalmers in his sermon on the expulsive power of a new affection. And at the risk of overusing this quote, I'm going to go to it again. Because it's relevant to where James is going to take us next. Listen to what Chalmers says. He says, seldom do any of our habits or flaws disappear. You got it, Lisa? Okay. Seldom do any of our habits or flaws disappear by a process of extinction through reasoning or by mere force of mental determination. Reason and willpower are not enough, but what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. 
And so what Chalmers communicates in this quote is where James is going to take us now. He's going to show us that if we're going to have victory in this battle against temptation, we can't just look away from temptation. We have to look toward the goodness of God. Our hearts must be captivated by a greater truth, a greater affection. You know, do you ever wonder why human beings sin in the first place? Not just in the first place, but why do we do it again? I mean, we get burnt, right? We know that it's not in our interest. We know it's a game we'll never win. We lose every time, and yet we keep playing over and over. Well, it's because sin has, has embedded in it two very deceptive lies. And the first lie is that God is withholding something good from us. Every sin tells us that. And second lie is that if we sin, we can attain that good thing and be happy. And so we think that we're going to get something good out of it that God is not giving us. And James is going to confront this lie by showing us just how good God is and just how committed he is to giving us those things which are good for us. So in contrast with man's sinful desires, James shows us that God, out of his goodness, has nothing but good desires. God, out of his goodness, has nothing but good desires. And we see James start to make this point in verse 13 when he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God has no capacity for evil. He can do no evil. He can't tempt. He can't be tempted. Unlike man's nature, which is this fountain of evil desires and temptations, God is only capable of desiring that which is good and holy and upright. Which means that anything God allows to happen ultimately has good purposes behind it. And this is critical when it comes uh, to successfully resisting temptation. Because we have to trust, if we're going to resist temptation, we have to trust that what God desires for us is better than what temptation is promising us. We have to first trust that what God desires for us is better than what temptation is promising us. And so in contrast to man's evil desires, which lead to evil actions, God has good desires. He is incapable of anything other than that. And next what James shows us is that flowing from God's good desire are God's good actions. And our text this morning calls these good actions good and perfect gifts. And there are two of these good and perfect gifts that our attention is drawn to this morning. The first one is creation. Let's look at our passage again. It says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So, so temptation comes to deceive us into thinking we're getting something good from us. That God is withholding something good from us. And James says, no, no, don't be deceived. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. From the Father of lights, he says. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? The Father of lights. You see, Scripture often refers to God's light as a picture of his perfect goodness and holiness. He is the father of all light. Even in creation, as he spoke light into existence and set the, the stars and the, and the sun in its place to provide light out of darkness, so is God's goodness to us. 
James is, is referencing God's goodness in creation as evidence of his goodness to us. You know, this is something that we see as a theme in the Bible as well. One of, one of the most fascinating dialogues, I think, in Scripture is with Job and, and, and his conversation with God during his suffering. Job, for 37 chapters, is suffering and making his case before God and wanting answers. And in chapter 38, God finally answers Job. And what does he do? Out of all the things that God can talk about to this suffering man, what does God do? He goes on this, like, pages-long rant about his role in creation. Why? Why doesn't he just comfort Job and say, I love you, I'm so sorry for what you're going through? Why does he just go on this rant about creation, saying things like, can you lead groups of stars out at the right time? Do you lead the stars of the bear with her young? Have you ever in your life told the morning when to come and caused the first light of day to know its place? And he goes on and on and on. We say, why doesn't he just comfort this guy? Well, he is comforting him. God is using his role in creation to show Job how much he cares about him, to show Job how good he is and how powerful he is. This is what Jesus is doing when he says, when he talks about God's care for the birds of the air and even for the flowers of the field as evidence of God's goodness to us. Creation is evidence that God is good and that he cares for us. But what James says is that Unlike the sun that as the earth rotates, uh, moves across the sky and creates shadows that are shifting and then ultimately sets and, and darkness comes in, he says, unlike that, God is not susceptible to such shadows. God has no darkness. God's light is constant. His goodness is constant. His perfection is constant. He's not for us one moment and against us the next. He's not good one moment and evil the next. He is constant light. And he is committed to giving good and perfect gifts to his children. And creation is just one example. But then James goes on to give us even greater evidence of God's love and care for us. This whole passage finds its, finds its crescendo here. He shows us the ultimate good gift, the ultimate proof that God not only has good desires for us, but acts on those desires by drawing our attention to the gospel. James makes this point. Look at our text one more time. It says, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creation. And you may not be able to tell by looking at this verse here, but he's going back now to this whole pregnancy birth metaphor. That word brought us forth means birthed. Just as man held sin deeply within, temptation within, and it eventually gave birth to sin, which resulted in death, he's saying, God has given birth to new life through the gospel, through the word of truth. God sent his own son to die the death that I should have died and has given me new life. This is the ultimate evidence of God's goodness that James gives us. So when we're faced with temptation, what this means for us practically is that when we're faced with temptation and wondering if God is withholding something good from us, something that sin can give us, James says, no, look to the gospel. Look at Christ on the cross. Is that not evidence enough that God is committed to meeting your greatest needs even when it is incredibly costly to God? I mean, this is exactly what Paul said when he, when he wrote this. He said, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, 
how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God gave us the most valuable thing that he had, his own son, to meet our greatest need. Will he not also give us the other things that we need? Is that not enough evidence that God is overflowing with goodness and will not withhold that goodness from us? You see, temptation starts to lose its power when we really believe this. It loses its power when we really believe that God is good and will not withhold any good thing from me. We can expose the false lie of sin. What it offers is not good because if it was good, I wouldn't have to sin to get it. God would give it to me from the abundance of his goodness. And so the gospel reminds us to look to him, not towards sin for good things. And in this way, it helps break the power of sin's enticement. But there's more to this. There's more to what James is communicating in the big picture. He's making a a larger theological argument here. You see, God's goodness in the gospel is not just motivation to, to fight against sin and temptation. His goodness in the gospel actually releases us from the penalty of sin. The fact that we already have caved to temptation. That's the elephant in the room in all of this is that You know, even if we were to leave here today and apply what we've learned and say, I'm going to focus on the goodness of God when I'm tempted and allow his goodness to to draw me away from that temptation. Here's the problem. You're already guilty. All of us are. What about all the times we didn't allow ourselves to reject temptation? What about all the times we didn't look to the goodness of God? We already carry the penalty. What about all the, the past and future sins? I mean, who cares if I leave here and find myself better equipped to resist temptation if that penalty is still there? And this is what is so beautiful about the passage. And what James is really hammering home is that God is so good that he not only gives us power to resist temptation, but that in Christ he's removed the penalty for when we don't. God sent Jesus, and unlike me, he never sinned. He never caved to temptation. Now I get credit for his perfect life while he carried the punishment for my sin, which as we learned is death. And it's this truth alone that will allow me to fight and stand, and, and, and stand against temptation from a place of grace, knowing that the penalty is removed. Because if that penalty remains, listen, our fight against temptation is meaningless. We will be crushed by that penalty. And it is only removed in Christ. And so when we put everything together that James has taught us, this is exactly what we see this morning. We see this, that the problem is man's sinfulness. Man's sinful desires are evidenced by his sinful actions which lead to death. But the solution is God's goodness. God, out of his good desires, has produced good actions which lead to new life. This is what James is showing us. And so when it comes to blame and credit, listen, there's something almost humorous about this picture because they're tempted to blame God for the temptation, right? Is God responsible? And James is saying when it comes to to blame, all of that falls on man. That top part, that's what you get credit for. Man's sinful desires, man's sinful actions, and death. James is handing out credit here. And he says that's what you get credit for. But he says when it comes to the goodness... Oh, that's all God. It's God's goodness, God's good desires, God's good actions that bring life. 
And I say it's almost humorous because this is the opposite of what we tend to do. We tend to blame God for the bad stuff and give ourselves credit for the good stuff. When things go wrong, it's God's fault. He did it. When things go right, well, I have been working pretty hard in that area and I have been doing well, you know, I don't mean to brag. And we tend to credit ourselves. And James says, no, you don't get the credit, you get the blame. God gets the credit out of his goodness. And so if I had to summarize the path that James has taken us on this morning, I would actually use the words of Paul because I believe it is the perfect summary for the truth that we hear in James, and it's this. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. That's what we learned this morning. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This passage is the truth that we hold fast to this morning. That although we deserve death, God through Christ has given us life. It's the truth that we need no matter where we're at. I mean, are you feeling the the weight and the penalty of sin? Experiencing the death that sin brings? Look to Christ on the cross. Look to the gospel. Knowing that he bore the penalty for our sin and alone can give you new life. Are you struggling with enticement to sin and the, and the battle of temptation that seems to just rage endlessly within us? James says, look to Christ on the cross because it's in the gospel that the false promises of sin are exposed and we are given the ultimate proof that God loves us and will not withhold any good thing from his children. And so we can resist, not simply by turning away from the temptation, but by turning to the goodness of God in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We love you this morning for sending your Son. We have sinned. We have caved to temptation, Lord, and we acknowledge this morning that that the rightful punishment is death, but how grateful we are that you sent your Son to, to live the life we should have lived to die the death that we should have died. We thank you for your grace and your forgiveness, Lord. I pray that our hearts would be so moved by your goodness this morning, would be so moved by the evidence of your goodness in the gospel that it would be stronger than the power of temptation, Lord. That in moments when we find ourselves enticed and lured by our evil desires, that we would remember that all good things come from you, the Father of lights. Every good and perfect gift comes from your hand. Allow that truth to sink in as we leave here this morning, Lord. Allow us never to forget that the, the cross is where we look to be shown the greatest evidence of your goodness. We pray these things in Jesus' name.